Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of John, the gospel according to John, and we'll be reading from chapter 1 and verse 19. And if you would, let's all stand together for the reading of God's Word. We'll read this responsively. I'll begin in verse 19 and we'll read this together in verse 20. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed. He did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we ask that you teach us. We ask that you make us the student that you would give us what we don't have, that we would be what we are not. And Lord, again, as always, we thank you for your word. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, we're in our fourth week studying the Gospel of John. We spent three weeks in introduction, as it were. And this morning we're going to take a marked shift in the material that we're going to be looking at. We've, we've been spending uh, a number of weeks in the first 18 verses in very deeply theological verses. We could have spent many more weeks studying these things, but they amount to the claims that John is making as to the basis of his book. We learned that he wrote the book in order that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing we might have life in his name. But to the things he wants us to believe to have that life, we learned last week, the weeks before, there are three. In verse 1 of John 1, that Jesus is God. We learned in verse 14 that Jesus became man. And then we learned in verse 18 last week as we close, that Jesus did this to show us the Father. Now what we do this morning is shift from theological terms to a a rather historical account, the the records, the hard evidence to support these three claims. And this morning, with what we just read, John calls his first witness, in this case, to convince you to believe that Jesus is who he said he was. And he calls as his first witness a man named John, John the Baptist. Now here's a, a, a tip for you, a study tip. And this will serve you well as you study through the Gospel of John. Anytime you come across the name John in the Gospel of John, that's not John the author. Because he never refers to himself in his book other than the one whom Jesus loved. But you'll never see his name that he wrote himself. And when we see John, it's going to be referring to John the Baptist. And just like we learned a couple of weeks ago that Jesus Christ, Christ not being his last name that he got from uh, Joseph and Mary Christ, uh, 
That is his title. In this, you could say that John the Baptist would be his title. It was given to him because of what he did. He was a baptizer. So to make him distinct from John the author, it's described as John the Baptist. And that's who we study this morning. Now, as a Bible class, and I like to think of the congregation as a Bible class. Class, what do you know about John the Baptist? Because we're going to learn that the things that we know about John don't likely come from John's gospel. We learn those things from other places. But what do we know about him? This probably goes all the way back to Sunday school. You remember Sunday school as a child in the flannel graph and John the Baptist. He was different wasn't he? What did he eat? You don't have to say this out loud. I'm asking you to think. He ate bugs or locusts and wild honey. I always thought that was strange to read wild honey. I'm not sure they had tame honey (laughs) or domesticated honey. Maybe that just meant that he got his honey right out of the beehive without a suit like others might wear, or without the smoker. I'm not sure. But there's just loads of things for a little boy or a little girl to imagine about this crazy, strange-looking person who lived where? Out in the wilderness, which meant he lived away from other people's homes. He lived out where there weren't lights and where when you slept you heard animals and so forth. We also learn about his clothing, don't we? About how he was dressed in animal skins. Uh, how he had a leather belt. If you have a King James Version, that's a leathern belt, right? I always thought that was interesting as well. I'm, I'm wearing leathern shoes right now. <laughs> but th- these are the things that stand out in our mind about the man. And his message was unique as well. Do you remember his message? He, he really had one message only. And it could be uh, boiled down to one specific word, and that was repent. And if you went out into the wilderness to hear this man deliver a sermon, and you expected to hear anything new, you were going to be disappointed. He only had one sermon, and that was repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The Messiah is coming. And he would color that up by saying, knocking down the mountaintops and filling up the valleys, but making the road straight which is another way of saying you get straight. Straighten up your lives. Repent from the way you'd been going. Turn about face. Go in a different direction. Because the reckoning is on its way. The Messiah is coming. That was his message. This is another question. Maybe a bit more technical. Maybe not. Uh, maybe wouldn't show as well on the quiz. If, if I were giving a quiz. But what was John's function? Because he, 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 he actually represents a function of the Old Testament. John the Baptist was the last Old Testament prophet. Now, the prophet uh, had a very long run. And you remember what prophets were to do. They were to remind the people of God of his word and their agreement. Prophets like the one who stuck his finger in David's face and said, You are the man. Or prophets that would round up other prophets and slay them at the foot of a mountain after he called fire down from heaven. Well, this is the last prophet to remind 
the Hebrew people of what God had told them and agreed and promised to in the covenant. But this would change. We talked last week about how John, the author, would be the last prophet, but in, under the new covenant when he wrote Revelation. But we know his clothing, we know his diet, we know his message, we know his function. But would you know that John, the author, skips just about every bit of that in his record? We'll read through here, and we're not going to read about his clothing, we're not going to read about his diet, we're not going to read uh, as much about his message, though it's there. And you almost want to say, well, John, why didn't you include that stuff? You skipped the good stuff, at least to keep us interested. Because that stuff didn't serve his purpose, remember? He only gathered stories, accounts, signs to convince you that Jesus was who he said he was. So the testimony of John is more important to John the author, the testimony of John the Baptist, than what he looked like or what he sounded like. And I do believe that he's taking for granted that the audience he's writing to already knows that stuff. It was written in the other Gospels. So the same is true with us. We, are, we walked in here really with all those details. Perhaps what we're going to learn this morning is something we didn't learn in the other Gospels. John is going to share with us something about his testimony that hopefully we'll be able to walk out of here with and in some way having changed our thinking or even changed the way we act. So John's skipping all this for the purpose of honing in on what he thinks is convincing about John's testimony. John the Baptist's testimony begins with a simple question and a surprising answer. If you look back at verse 19, it says simply this, and this is the testimony of John. This is his account. When Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? So his testimony on the record from his lips for time and memorial was precipitated by a a delegation of, of priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him publicly, who are you? In an official capacity. So this is what we'll concern ourselves with, thinking our way through how this happened, what was asked, and how John replied. So if we start pulling this apart as good investigators, first question is, who is asking the question? Who are these priests and Levites. Well, they were Jews and in, a, in an official capacity, in, in governmental terms. Uh, they were governing officials and they were on a, on a, a fact-finding mission. Uh, this was in an official capacity. So uh, to try to find something that we would recognize here and now as an equivalent would be uh, some type of an investigation. A governing body sends someone to begin to ask questions about something that looks as if it's one way and they want to know for sure. Well, that would be similar here. What does the question mean might be the next thing we would want to know. And basically what they're asking is, what do you have to say for yourself? And then the final question would be, how does John respond? And he just responds by, listen to the way John sets this up, John the, the author. He confessed, and usually that word brings to mind a crime, 
and we have an, the, the accused and what we want to get from them is a confession. Did you do it? But this is not necessarily something that John has done as much as it is John someone who they think he is or not. And he did not deny, which means he did not string them along or was ambiguous. And then again, he confessed. So this is John's confession, even though it's not a confession of wrong. It's a confession of who he is. And here's the confession. I am not the Christ. So that's what we're working with. Before we get to what it means for him to say, I am not the Christ, let's think of a few other things and try to paint this picture in our minds with our imaginations as to what it would have been like to be there on that day. Everybody knew about John the Baptist if you lived in this period in time. When we read in other accounts that there were multitudes of people coming from the city to hear this man. He was the popular speaker. They couldn't get enough of John the Baptist. Don't know exactly what it was. Was it his diet or his looks? The command of his voice? To hear the same message over and over again. And the droves of people who were being baptized in the river as a result of their repentance. Really, it is uh, unparalleled to, to see the Jewish people following after a figure than this record that we have here. So as his reputation began to, to broaden and as more people went out to hear him, who do you think would be most interested in that? Because the, the priests and the Levites who are in charge of government and teaching the people and custodians of the Jewish law, of course they want to know who this is. Perhaps we might actually have a candidate for the position of Messiah on our hands. They've been looking for this Messiah for hundreds and hundreds of years. And the way John asks or answers, I am not the Christ, even though that in so many words they didn't say, hey, are you the Messiah we're looking for? Which he answered, I'm not the Messiah you're looking for. I'm not Christ. But that's why they're there. To find out who he is and what he's doing. And why in the world are all these people in up such a fuss to hear him, to see him, to go out into the middle of nowhere to do so. So if we're thinking of a modern equivalent of this, let's just say you've got someone in the field of academics who's been writing and people are finally reading his writings. He's, he's now published. He's now being asked for interviews. Uh, his blog is receiving so many hits and, 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 and discussion and so forth. Or someone in the field of research. They've been researching and now they've finally found what they've got. And, and, and investors are now coming and they, they, they want in on what is happening because it looks as if we've got ourselves something here. Or uh, it's just in the entertainment business. I mean, you, you, you need one, what, YouTube video to go, what? Viral. And then everybody knows your name. John the Baptist has gone viral. And these people want to know why and who and how. Who do you say you are? This is what public figures actually dream about, isn't it? Say you're the researcher, you're the author, you're the entertainer. This is your big break. 
fact, you, you've had a, f- a few public things you've done here and there, but to have a delegation from Jerusalem, the Jews, and everybody's watching. The cameras are filming. You've had your hair and makeup. This guy didn't need it, did he? But this is what we look for. It's finally his break. So what he says in response is going to make or break the rest of his career, wouldn't it be? It's his to lose, but it might be the world to gain. So this is huge. Or as somebody else might say, huge. Right? It's about as big as it gets. So everybody's watching and we ask the question, okay, what happens next? And what he says constitutes his testimony on the record. This will be in print the next morning. I am not the Christ, is what he says. Nothing ambiguous, no beating around the bush, crystal clear. I am not what you came out here to find. That's profound. But we'll have to dig a little deeper to see how profound it is. So we have John's confession. Even though most people think of that as a, as a legal term, many were asking, could this be the one? And John lets all of them down by saying, no, I'm not. Now, how many of you think this is a difficult passage to interpret? Really, there's not a lot here, is there? I mean... This could have been one of the biggest passages in Scripture. The man's gone viral. His delegation is there. Everybody's watching. Here's the question. And he lets the air out of the room. He lets the air out of the wilderness by saying, nope, not him. Not what you're looking for. Pretty cut and dry. So we've got, as far as you've heard me say this over and over again, when we're studying our Bibles, we need to ask two questions. What are we supposed to understand and how are we supposed to obey? So as far as what we're supposed to understand, this is going to wind up as another one of those messages without any points. He doesn't give us three points. John only just gives us a big bag of no. Not only am I not the Christ, I'm not Elijah and I'm not the prophet. So we get three no's. But how do, you, how do you put the sermon together around three no's? So we've done our work as far as understanding what this is supposed to mean. What this passage means is that John's not the Messiah. So from this point, earlier in most messages, we get to jump into the next stage. All right? So what are we supposed to obey? Now, not only is this a pointless message. It doesn't have points. Don't tell people you heard a pointless message this morning. They might not understand But this is also not a good candidate for one of those messages that you could describe as a go thou and do likewise message, right? Now, let's try that on for a minute. Make sure before we dismiss it. Should we leave this room? And in some sphere, maybe our living room, maybe just out in front of the road here and confess John's confession. I am not the Christ. Is that necessary? Would it be useful? Put it this way. Has anybody asked you whether or not you were? (laughs) I've never been asked. I've never been asked if I was Elijah. I've never been asked if I was the prophet. And I've surely never been asked if I was Jesus. And I doubt any of you have ever been asked. It's not really the same. We're not like John 
we don't perhaps maybe in some ways fit what some may have been looking for as far as their prophesied Messiah. But then again, maybe we've got something here. If we take the question out of the desert, out of the wilderness with John and the Jews standing there and everybody else 2,000 years ago, and ask the question differently, suppose it's not for a crowd we're answering or that question. Suppose it's just for our own personal good. I am not the Christ. Would that be of any benefit? Well, often, and here's how I'll set this up, because I'm, I'm, I'm going to say by the end of this message, I think it's a very necessary thing to confess, even as though there's really no worry or wonder that we'd ever assume that we were. But some messages, some passages are hard to put in a three points in a poem type of, of, of format. And in the world of preaching and teaching, a lot of emphasis is put over on application. Usually that's when people sit up a little taller in the pew. Okay, he's getting to the part where, what's in this for me? What, 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 what will I do with this? That's called application. How do you apply a passage like this? It could be tough. Um, and this is where sometimes I like to use something a little different than application. Um, and that's implication. Do you know the difference between application and implication? It's two different words. They mean two different things. But I doubt you've ever heard in a sermon, all right, let's get down to the implication. You usually hear, let's get down to the application. Well, application is usually dealt with by the question, what do I do with this? Okay, you could go to Walmart or your, your bathroom at home, pick up a bottle of shampoo. What do I do with this? You look on the back and it says, apply to scalp. There's your application. And it says to do so liberally. They want you not to be a conservative, but a liberal when you use their shampoo. That way you'll need a bottle sooner <laughs> than later. And then it might even say rinse and repeat. After you've applied it, apply it twice. But that's, that's what you do with it. So a lot of passages, a lot of Titus was very easy to ask the question, what do I do with this? It was absolutely full of lists of characteristics that we should have in our life as Christians. But then there's implications. The implication is usually dealt with not by just one question, but a lot of questions that fall out of what happens now because of something. Let's say this afternoon you leave the gate open, the fence around your yard. What may be the implications of leaving your gate open? Your dog might get out. Dog might then get into the garbage of your neighbor few days from now you might receive a lovely letter from the homeowners association don't leave your gate open your dog got out and got in the neighbor's trash don't do that anymore those are all implications of what happens with leaving the door open so today i think in application implication might actually better serve us what is implied by thinking through the fact that you are not the christ that John is not the Christ. That there's only one Christ and his name is Jesus. 
Would that help sometimes? To know that because you are not your Messiah and Jesus is, you can stop trying to act like it. Or you can stop trying to expect that somebody else be your Messiah. You see, if he really truly is the Messiah, if John's correct, and he is, then boy, doesn't that really simplify a lot of our lives. There's things we don't have to do anymore. We don't have to save ourselves anymore. This really is huge to think of it this way. What are the implications of John having confessed that he was not the Christ? Because Jesus was Christ regardless of whether or not John says he is or isn't. Even if John said, I am the Christ, Jesus is still the Christ. John's not. So the implications as far as Jesus go from what John said are nothing. But does this shape the man John for who he is? Because later we're going to hear that Jesus compliments him above all others. From people born of, of, of women. That's everybody on the planet. And maybe this had something to do with it. Turn with me to chapter 3. We're going to read ahead. These are the implications of what John is saying. This is what they amount to. A guy who says, I'm not the Christ, will also say something like John says in verse 30. Look at it. Chapter 3, verse 30. You probably already know this, though you might not have known its reference. What does John say? He must increase, but I must decrease. There's the implications of knowing for a fact that you are not the Christ, somebody else is. So for my life, he, the real Messiah, must increase. And me, the not Messiah, must decrease. That's profound. I don't think that any of us are in danger of ever wanting to say, I am the Christ. If I, if I passed out quiz papers again, I already had one quiz earlier. The second quiz is, uh, are you the Christ? Check yes or no. We'd all get that right. But how often do we get the implications of that wrong? What if question number two is, how often are you decreasing as the real Messiah is increasing? Check yes or no. That's quite an implication. We get that backwards a lot, don't we? You ever heard of a Messiah complex? That's where guys think they're a God figure. Maybe a tyrannical boss. Or someone who just rules his home with an iron fist. He thinks he knows everything. He's God's gift to this corner of his world we call that a messiah complex now most laid back people i like to consider myself laid back i don't know whether or not you think i'm laid back but i like to think i'm laid back i don't like to be uptight i can get uptight and there are things that can torque me and get activated but i'd rather be laid back and most laid back people don't really have much use for someone with a messiah complex you just want to look at it and say, really, why? But usually I've found that the more laid back you are, the more you might be guilty of the opposite of a Messiah complex. You're looking, expecting people to have all those things that perhaps your spouse might feel 
I can't live up to what they expect. They expect Messiah, a Savior. We didn't get married to save each other. Jesus does that. But how often do we want to do that? It could be as, as, as goofy as expecting your insurance agent to be perfect or your pastor to be perfect. To be not only omnipresent at everything, graduations, ball games, birthday parties, uh, visitation. There's, there's more things in an area in a decent-sized church than one guy could ever be at. But then there's also the expectation that they be omnicompetent. Ever heard of that? Omnicompetent? He's got to be good at everything. Why is it that we want to find somebody perfect, even if we don't think we ourselves are perfect? What about your children? What do you expect out of them? Do you see how I think we're guilty of this type of thing? Who's increasing? Who's decreasing? Who's the Messiah here? Either we're trying to be one or we're expecting somebody else to be. But the idea is, is how much of Christ, the real Messiah, is being robbed by the expectations we have in others of what he only is supposed to be? It's a good question. God help us from thinking that we're someone's Savior, and God help us from expecting someone to be our Savior. There's only one Savior, and His name is Jesus. So look at verse 21, back to John 1. We weren't done with it. We kind of cut Him off when He said, I am not the Christ. They had other questions, because after they've asked, and He said, no, well, okay, let, let's make sure if you're not any of the rest of these we're looking for. Verse 21, and they ask Him, okay then... Are you Elijah? Why would he say that? Well, because the prophecy was that Elijah would precede the Messiah. And actually, Jesus is going to refer to John the Baptist as that Elijah. In the spirit of Elijah, not the, the person Elijah. Because there are some who like to say, Jesus said he was Elijah and John the Baptist said he wasn't. So who's right? They're both right, of course. As we're reading scripture. But they're asking if he is the reincarnation of Elijah. And he says, no. We're coming in the spirit, in the prophetic voice of Elijah, he was. But he's not giving them much this day. In fact, I think he likes saying no. Because they ask, are you the prophet? And that was one like Moses. That's also a prophecy. And he said no. And if you notice, his uh, answers are getting incrementally shortened. No, I'm, I'm not the Christ. Are you Elijah? I am not. That's three words. The last one is just a plain old no. How many of you parents did that with your kids this week? Hey, mama. What do you need, son? Hey, mama. What is it? Hey, mama. What? <laughs> Patience is dwindling here, too. As if John is saying, you're not catching my drift here. I'm not any of that. Any of the things that you want to say that you found that you're looking for, you're not going to find them in me. They're only found in one place, and that is the real Messiah. So stop looking in the wrong place. I'm not the one you're looking for. So John's testimony is clear in that he would take nothing away from Christ's ministry. You hope to get John on record stealing from the Messiah, even in a little bit, by saying, you know what, I'm actually his cousin. 
I spend a lot of time with him. If you want to meet him, I can work that out. In fact, I've written some things about him that I think were good. You could publish those. There's no relationship grubbing here with him. He's absolutely washing his hands of it. He must increase. I must decrease. And if you, if you look at that little small statement, it's inversely proportional. And to reduce or reverse the equation, you need only handle one side and the other moves accordingly. So all you've got to do is increase yourself in order to decrease Christ. It's very simple. It's easy to do. We do it without even knowing what's happening. In our culture, we're told to be true to ourselves, to decide who we want to be, and then demand that our community and family recognize and honor that, regardless of its impact on relationships. Would you say that's pretty true of our culture? Be true to yourself. Be your own person. It doesn't matter who likes it or doesn't. They have to accept it. Because that's who you are. This is exactly opposite of the way John handles this. Now what if you think about this. Not on an individualistic level. What are the implications of this confession. From the perspective of us gathered together as a church. Is it possible that a church. Though not intentionally. But is it possible that they could take away from the ministry of our Savior, Jesus Christ, by the way they get in and over and on what should be His work alone? Think about it. Who's increasing? And when you think of a church, an increasing church is probably a better one, right? Maybe blessed of the Lord. Certainly, if, if I were to, again, quiz paper, should, should Wake Chapel increase or decrease? Well, you, you need to qualify that. In what way? But the assumption is probably, oh, I will, I will take increase. In fact, let's fill all these pews up, and then we'll start filling up the Family Life Center, and then we'll build a new building, because that's all good, right? We want to increase budget, our, our, our footprint in the community, what people think of us. And all those are good, and I'm not trying to be a smart aleck here, but would that be more or less important as being known in this community we live in as the church with a big Jesus and a small ego? That would be where he's increasing while we decrease. Because there are churches, I don't know too many of them yet, I've only been here a few months, that are probably the opposite Little Jesus, huge ego. That wouldn't be right. That's taking away from Jesus. He's the only Messiah. Your church can't be your Messiah any more than your wife or your parent or the United States government or your president. We expect so much out of these things when we were never meant to expect anything but that out of anything other, anyone other than Jesus. So it's quite a lot to think about. The implications of something as simple as saying, I am not the Christ. I am not because there's only one. And I can't be. So I'm going to quit trying to be or expecting anyone else to. I'll trust the Messiah, the real Messiah. So verse 22, they say, Who are you? 
We need to give an answer to those who sent us. Don't you like the way they, they're just absolutely desperate there at the bottom? Oh, you've got to give us something, John. We came all the way from Jerusalem, and the people we're going back to expect us to say something. I mean, you've got you to give us something, John. You ever felt that way? Well, what does he say? I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So they're really not catching John's drift. They're still hung up on who he was. That's one more thing we could learn. If we're going to make sure we squeeze everything we can out of this. How, how much of our lives is spent on the preoccupation of who's who? Who am I? Who are you? Who are they? What did they say? I mean, just think about... What's involved in getting ready for work in the morning, putting on your clothes, combing your hair? Can you do any of that without thinking about what other people are thinking about you? And how much of that do you do because people are looking at you? You know, I love to hear some of these younger people talk about how they, they, they just, this is my style, this is how I dress. And I don't care what anybody thinks about it. I don't believe that. Because there's a lot cheaper clothes if you really don't care what anybody <laughs> thinks about it. But that's what we do. We buy things to impress people that we don't even like. It's the way that works. So who are you? Who are they? They're asking who John is. And what John is going to tell them is I'm just a voice. I'm a nobody. I willingly decrease myself to nothing more than a trumpet for the one who's coming behind me. Can you imagine a church reducing itself to nothing more than what it takes to be a trumpet for the one who died to make all that possible? Or, or think about the people in your life that made a difference as far as the kingdom, spiritually speaking, that they really helped you along as a Christian. Was that because they were a big shot and gave Jesus just a little piece? Or was that because you, you really couldn't see them foreseeing Jesus? It was like just one big mirror to reflect Jesus. It's all they were. And that's why they made such a big difference. Now, if we were to turn to another place, actually another gospel, we hear Jesus talking about John saying this, I tell you, among, whom, among those born of women, none is greater than John. You'll find no greater compliment in Scripture. And coming from none other than the God who created everybody, he says John is the greatest. Why is John the greatest? Maybe because John had a unique ability to make himself the least. Because if you look at it, perhaps the reason why John's testimony was so convincing is because it made the most out of Jesus and the least about John. Does that testimony just shock you? I mean, say you're the skeptic. We might have a skeptic this morning. Glad to have skeptics here. 
And this is why this book of John was written, to convince you that Jesus is who he said he was. Would you rather listen to somebody trying to sell Jesus as the latest and greatest thing ever by propping up themselves as to all these things that I've gathered as a result of it? Or listening to the most odd, unique person you've ever seen in your life who doesn't even make sense to you. They sleep outside, they eat bugs, and all they do with their time all day and all night is talk about someone other than themselves. I'd listen to that guy because that, that doesn't exist. So where you work and who you trade with, where you go to school, do you think it would make a difference in that sea of people that one person was so real a Christian that there wasn't any room for their own agenda? That would stick out like a sore thumb, wouldn't it? You could win some people over that way. And I think this might be why John chooses this as his first witness, his first testimony. Question is today, here's your application, implication, whichever you choose makes most sense. Is that your testimony? Can you confess, I am not the Christ? I know the Christ and I am not him is your testimony big Jesus and small you have you made much of Christ do you consider your existence here on this planet to be nothing more than a voice for him and the business for which he died boy that that's that's just one thought but it's a it's a pocket full isn't it to take home and think should you say that every morning when you get up I'm not the Christ, so I don't have to act like it. I don't have to try to be it, and I certainly shouldn't expect it out of anybody else. And hopefully, from that position, I can point somebody else to the real Christ who can do all of that for them. And that's how heaven is built. With that said, let's continue our service in song. Would you bow your head with me, please? Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of forgiveness, that you have forgiven us for our sins. And if there's someone today, dear Lord, in this congregation that hadn't forgiven their brother, sister, or loved one, please open their hearts, Lord, and know that Jesus said he forgave those who crucified him, who beat him, who spit on him. And what can we do? but forgive. That's a great gift. We thank you, Lord, that we live in a nation that was founded on your word. And as we get together with our family members this Thursday, Lord, help us to remember that it's not just Thursday, but it's every day. We are a child of the King, of Jesus Christ, who sits at the right hand of Almighty God and intercedes for us each and every second of every day. And we have a home in heaven and if there's someone here today, Lord, that does not know you, we ask you to please send your Holy Spirit and open their hearts and minds to accept you as Savior and Lord. Thank you for each person here today and that each person that's on the Internet, dear Lord. Please help us to be like John the Baptist and boldly profess you as Savior and Lord. He was, he was there with John the Baptist. He's you, you are with us today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.